This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. You please turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 20. <coughs> we will pick up tonight where we left off last week at verse 19 and then continue through the end of the chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we see that these things are recorded in your word that we might believe. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that all here gathered tonight would believe that you would write this gospel truth on our hearts and that we would take this gospel truth to a lost and dying world that so desperately needs to hear it. That you would open the hearts and minds of those you have called to salvation that they too would be believing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the most unbelievable thing that has ever happened to you that you know with certainty is true? 
something you experienced, something you saw that if you told people about, or maybe you have told people about it, and they think you're crazy. This is a rather small example, but when I was a teenager, I had a bedroom in our house that was not particularly well insulated against the Wyoming cold and wind, and to help offset this, my parents gave me an electric heat blanket. Well, one night I was lying in bed and dozing off, and suddenly I heard a loud pop noise. I thought something had fallen on the floor or something like that. I didn't think much of it. And then a minute or so later, I suddenly realized that my feet were very warm. And I looked down and my bed was on fire. I went into the kitchen, my room was right next to the kitchen, grabbed the fire extinguisher, put the fire out, limited the damage from spreading beyond my bed. Not a bad response, if I do say so myself. But then I had to go tell my parents. Their room was clear at the opposite end of the house. I told them that my bed had caught on fire, and they did not believe me. Maybe I just had too calm and cool of a demeanor that I didn't look like someone who had just come from a bed that was on fire. Both my mom and dad thought I was up to something. But I insisted, and finally they decided to come look, and once they saw the damage and the fire extinguisher powder everywhere, then they were convinced. Some things are hard to believe. We all have certain expectations of the way things are, the way things should be, the way things should happen. And when someone tells us of something that has happened that is outside of these expectations, we can struggle to believe. Well, John in his gospel has recorded the events of Jesus' resurrection and the events following it in a very particular way towards a particular purpose. He records these details so that the events are known and so that doubts and lies might be refuted. But those doubts and lies don't just exist now in a time long after John is gone. They started the very day that Jesus was raised. And it wasn't just among Jesus' enemies. Jesus' friends. Jesus' disciples have difficulty believing that Jesus has been raised from the dead because, well, you just don't expect to see that. That doesn't happen any more than beds spontaneously combusting. Less so than beds spontaneously combusting. And yet John records the details of Jesus' resurrection right down to the details of doubt and disbelief that Jesus' followers had. This is a real account. This is a human account. It is what you would expect when the, in, uh, when the entirely unprecedented and unexpected happens. And it is recorded so that we may believe. So we will look at our text tonight in three points. First, peace in verses 19 through 23. In his first appearance to his gathered disciples, Jesus comes in peace, though also to give them a purpose. And then second, proof in verses 24 through 29. One of the disciples in particular, Thomas, was not there at that first gathering, and he needed a bit more convincing. 
And then third and finally, we get a purpose in verses 30 and 31. This is John's purpose. He tells us why he has recorded these things. So peace, proof, purpose, those are our points for tonight. First, we see peace in verses 19 through 23. We pick up on the evening of Resurrection Sunday. Now remember at the end of our passage last time that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and gave her orders to go tell the disciples that Jesus was risen and that he must ascend to the Father. And so she did. Now remember also that this was in an age where the testimony of women was generally considered unreliable. Mary's not the witness you would want if you were going to make this story up. Now, while not recorded in John, there were other appearances that Jesus made that day as well. For instance, Jesus appeared to some of his disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24. So there were all these various and fragmentary reports that Jesus was alive, including some claims of eyewitnesses. Now, at least one of the disciples, John himself, believed that Jesus was raised even not having seen him. But everyone, or not everyone, was so quickly persuaded. And why would they be? Again, dead people don't come back to life. So we see that on that Sunday night, the disciples assembled together, and likely the major topic of their discussion were these various reports of Jesus' resurrection. Some believed already, and some did not. But skepticism was not the only problem in the room that evening. There was also the problem of fear. We see this in the way that they are assembled. They're together in a room, but they're locked away, as John records, for fear of the Jews. Now we can understand why. The leaders of the Jews had just a couple of days prior succeeded at their conspiracy to kill Jesus. Maybe that success emboldened them. What was to prevent them from coming back and doing likewise to Jesus' closest friends and followers? With Jesus having been condemned and executed, in the eyes of the Jewish establishment, Jesus' followers were outcasts and outlaws. Of course, these resurrection accounts sure seem to complicate things. So the disciples were likely gathered together to talk about all of this among themselves. But their gathering gets crashed by Jesus himself. At the end of verse 19, he came and stood in their midst. Now they were shut up in this room. The doors were locked. He appeared there using his supernatural power. And yet he appeared in his physical body. More on that in a moment. But Jesus' first words to them are, Peace be with you. Now why of all the things that he could say on his first appearing to his disciples does Jesus say this? Well, first remember that Jesus had died. Some of the disciples would have thought they were seeing a ghost. In fact, Luke 24, 37 records that they did think they saw a ghost. They thought Jesus was a spirit. John doesn't include that detail. But also, the last time Jesus had seen most of them, they were falling away. They were running and hiding in fear. In Jesus' hour of greatest trial, most of the disciples had turned their backs on him. 
and yet he appears in peace. He appears in love and grace. And then John next records that Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Now given that Jesus had died, and given that he had just appeared in a locked room, they had some good reason to believe that he was a ghost, that he was just a spirit. But ghosts don't have bodies. Ghosts don't have scars. Jesus shows his body and it's scarring to show that he was one and the same Jesus who had suffered and had died in the flesh. And he had been raised bodily, physically, not as a mere spirit, but body and soul. And that is all the proof these disciples needed. We next see that they rejoiced. They were glad when they saw the Lord. But Jesus didn't just come to reveal to them that he was alive. Not only did he come in grace and peace to these disciples, but he had a job for them to do. He again says, peace to you. He reiterates and confirms his peace. But then he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Their job, having now seen Jesus in his resurrection glory, was to proclaim him. But if they're going to do that, they're going to need some help. So we next read that he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, while the Holy Spirit does not come in fullness of power and glory until Pentecost, some weeks later after Jesus was ascended, what is given here is essentially a preview of that, a preparation for that. And here he also commissions his disciples to do the work of his church. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, this is similar language to what Jesus used in Matthew when he described the keys of the kingdom. Now, this text here is variously interpreted. Roman Catholics think that this is the basis for priestly mediation, where those who hold the office of apostolic succession can actually forgive or withhold forgiveness. That's not what's really going on. For one, the New Testament is clear that Jesus himself is our priestly mediator, and there is no other. Read Hebrews if you're not clear on that. But what Jesus is doing is authorizing his church, which these apostles will found, to exercise the keys to preach the gospel by which people will be saved and to exercise discipline by which the church will be governed and by which the spiritual realities of salvation and condemnation will work out on the earth. Those who repent and receive the forgiveness of sins in Christ as he is proclaimed in his church are forgiven. Those who are hardened and rebellious are not. So just as Jesus sent by Mary the news that he would ascend, he gives himself, the disciples, their orders for what comes next. Of course, one of the disciples was missing from this meeting. He was not there for Jesus' appearance in this commissioning. So this brings us to our next point. After peace, we come to proof in verses 24 through 29. So the one who was missing was Thomas. The other disciples later tell Thomas that they had seen the Lord, that Jesus had appeared to them. But Thomas wasn't buying it. 
He says that he would not believe unless he had the opportunity to see and touch Jesus' scars for himself. Now, he is holding a much higher standard of skepticism than the others. Remember that John believed when he saw the empty tomb. He didn't even have to see Jesus to know that he had been raised from the dead. The other disciples were contented just to see Jesus and his wounds. We don't have any record in the previous meeting that any of them actually touched him. But Thomas is extra stubborn. He is extra skeptical. The empty tomb and the word of the other disciples was not enough for him. He needs something more. He needs something extra. He needs some personal experience that is above and beyond what the rest of them had. John Calvin writes of Thomas's stubborn response, These words have no approach to faith, but it is what may be called a sensual judgment, by which I mean a judgment which is founded on the perception of the senses. The same thing happens to all who are so devoted to themselves that they leave no room for the word of God. So Thomas's posture is extra stubborn and extra egregious, extra focused on himself and what he sees and hears and experiences. And it is a denial of the word and the power of God. See, Jesus told his disciples he would be raised and the tomb was empty. Ten other disciples saw Jesus and bore witness. But for Thomas, focused on himself, that wasn't good enough. And Thomas seems to cling to that stubborn posture for an entire week. We read in verse 26 that eight days later, the disciples were gathered together again. Doors shut again, very similar scene to before. Jesus appears to them again with the same greeting. Peace to you. And he knows about Thomas's doubts and the specific demands that Thomas had placed on what it would take for him to believe. And Jesus is willing to oblige. He tells Thomas, reach your fingers here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. If Thomas needs to touch Jesus' scars to believe, then that's what's going to happen. But it happens with a particular purpose. Do not be unbelieving, but believing, Jesus says. Thomas is committing here the sin of all sins, unbelief. Even Calvin doesn't mince his words describing Thomas here. He says the stupidity of Thomas was astonishing and monstrous. You know, Calvin's usually pretty level-headed, so he really brings the pain for Thomas and his unbelief. The call that is made to all who hear the news of Jesus' resurrection is the same. Jesus died, but he is alive. Turn from unbelief and believe in him. And unbelief, in Calvin's words, is stupid and astonishing and monstrous. For all the attacks on Christianity that we hear in our day by atheists and skeptics and false worshipers and others, it is not belief, but rather unbelief that is foolish and evil above all else. That was true then, and it is true now. 
And yet, to those who turn from and repent of their unbelief, Christ is ready to receive. For Thomas, having been so corrected, confesses of Christ, my Lord and my God. Thomas confesses not only that Christ has been raised, but his deity, his divinity, that Jesus is God. For who but God could conquer death? But Jesus responds to Thomas's confession with a minor rebuke. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This stands as a rebuke of the kind of skepticism that Thomas here displayed. It is better to believe having not seen than to only believe after having seen. Again, this was true then and it is true now. We are now nearly 2,000 years removed from Jesus' resurrection. No one living today has seen Jesus. He has ascended. He is at the right hand of the Father. And yet millions believe. Billions have believed throughout the course of history. As I said earlier, so many demand some special experience, some special proof of God. They would put God to the test. There's plenty of proof. There's plenty of evidence left and recorded for us that Jesus is alive. Really, as historical events go, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the better attested ones that we have. All the witnesses, all the things that happened and the way they happened, the facts that these disciples were not only willing to say that Jesus was raised, but willing to live and willing to die for the testimony that Jesus was raised, and many more alongside them. But unbelief is powerful, so powerful that it cannot be broken unless God himself intervenes to enlighten the mind and the heart. And this brings us to our final point. After peace and proof, we come to the purpose in verses 30 and 31. So John here puts some closing remarks on Jesus' appearances to his disciples at his resurrection. He records that truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. Now, some are written in other books. We've at times in recent weeks looked at how the events were recorded in the other Gospels, though not too many more events recorded than these. Now, there are many attempts by many people to speculate beyond what is recorded of Jesus in the Bible and in the Gospels and try to fill in the blanks in the details. There's currently a very popular television show, which is not only a gross violation of the second commandment by visually portraying Jesus, but also a violation of the third, invoking Christ falsely and describing and attributing things to him which are not true, making up that he says things he didn't say, that he did things he didn't really do, things that are beyond what is recorded in Scripture. Now, this isn't a new problem. 
In the time of the early church, one of the great early heresies was Gnosticism. And it rested on writings called the Gnostic Gospels. They were written much later than the real Gospels, but they claimed to describe events of Jesus' childhood and other things he did in his life that were not recorded in the Bible, and they would build their doctrine and teaching on these. More recently, the Book of Mormon claimed to describe how Jesus came after his resurrection and preached the gospel to Native Americans who were actually dispersed Jews. That's what the LDS Church believes and teaches. There is always the pull and the temptation to add to these words or to speculate beyond them. Why do we have these events of Jesus' life and ministry recorded for us and not others? Well, John tells us in verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What we have recorded and preserved for us of Jesus' life and ministry is what is necessary for our salvation. As we stand here near the end of John's Gospel, Lord willing, we have one more week to go, we are confronted once again with a problem we have often seen throughout the problem of what people want and what people expect from Jesus. We saw how many came to Jesus to get stuff when Jesus was doing miracles and feeding and healing and raising the dead. People followed Jesus because they wanted that stuff. They wanted those benefits. Many even wanted to make him king, first in Galilee and then later in Jerusalem. They wanted a strong king that would throw off the Roman occupiers and restore the kingdom of earthly power and glory that David and Solomon and their descendants once had. What did these desires and hopes and aspirations for Jesus bring? There came a time where the feeding and the healing stopped. Jesus never took the throne of David in Jerusalem and threw off the Romans at least not in the worldly ways that many of them wanted. Even as John recorded when Jesus stood before Pilate, about to be condemned to death, he denied that his kingdom was of this world. He was the king. This was even written on his cross. But again, he wasn't the king they wanted or expected. So what then has this all been about? Why did John write this book? Why did he record these things? So that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in him. This isn't just a story. This isn't just a biography of a man. It does tell us about a man, a real man who lived and breathed. But this is the gospel truth of a God-man who lived a real, sinless life, keeping the law of God perfectly and teaching of a kingdom coming. A God-man who died a brutal, undeserved criminal's death, and yet in doing so drank the full cup of God's wrath, 
He paid the penalty for sinners so that they might be justified, that they might be declared righteous in the judgment of God. A God-man who was raised from the dead, who conquered death so that death does not get the last word, and so that there may be hope beyond death for God's people. John did not record these things just to tell a good story. It is, but that's not the point. John did not record these things to be a historical record. It is, but that's still not the point. John wrote these words because in these words and only in these words, unlike any other histories and stories and men of the past, can be found eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These words are written so that we might believe in Christ, and by believing in Christ, we might have life. That is the purpose of John. Perhaps you're here tonight like Thomas. You remain unconvinced that these words are true. You feel like you need something more. Something better than this gospel by which God has brought millions, billions to faith. Do not persist in rebellion and foolishness. Confess Christ as your Lord and your God, as your Savior, and have life in His name. Repent of your sins, even your sins of unbelief, and find life in Christ's name. And if you are here tonight believing, praise God for that. But this story is meant to be told. There is a lost and dying world that persists in its unbelief. May we all find the courage and opportunity to take the truth of Christ where it has not been heard, to support this work where it is done, so that all who God has called may believe, just as these things were written so that we may believe. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel that has been recorded for us through your servant John, has been preserved for us, so that we might believe that Jesus Christ is your son and that we may have life in his name. Pray that if there is any here tonight who do not have this life and do not have this faith, that you would work it in their hearts by your Holy Spirit. I pray that this gospel would go forth freely and unhindered, that those whom you have called from the foundation of the earth would be brought in by these words of truth and words of life. I pray that you would write these words on our hearts, that we would always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.